Good morning. Everybody have a good, happy July 4th? No? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, anybody eat anything good? Uh, anybody uh, blow up any money? Yeah, a few of you know what I'm talking about. I let everybody else do that, and I just watch it. So, uh, hey, it's good to have you here this morning, and uh, my name's Nick, and I'm one of the pastors. If you're a guest with us, let me again just say uh, thanks for being here. I know we've got a lot of folks out on the road, traveling, seeing family, enjoying some time away from home during the summer, and, uh, but I also know there's some guests that happen to be here because you're out on the road, and so just welcome to Point Community Church, and as Harley said, uh, we are a family here. Uh, we welcome you into our family. We're not an exclusive family. And when we say uh, we're a family, we also don't mean we're a perfect family. Um, like your family, or wait, at least like my family, uh, we're not perfect. We don't have it all together. So uh, let me just speak that out this morning. And if you're here and you uh, are wondering why we're so excited to sing these songs about Jesus, it's because he's everything to us. He's life. And he's, he's all that we need. And so we're just so thankful for him. And we're so grateful that we have life in Christ. And so... Uh, as Harley said, this is a great Sunday to be here because we're going to really dig into who the person of Jesus is, what, what we, um, we really believe about him. And in order to help us with that, I just ask you guys to reach down and grab the worship guide you received when you came in. And uh, if you would pick that up, and we're going to encourage you to take some notes, to write some things down. Uh, in that guide, you'll find uh, a couple of things, including the insert that, that Landon mentioned, which kind of explains to you what a cornerstone is and why that song uh, is so impactful uh, when you think about who Christ is in our faith and in our lives. But also, there's a, a little card called a connection card in there. And at some point uh, during my message, before we close out uh, the service, we want to just ask you to fill that out. Anybody not get a worship guide when you came in? You can lift your hand. We've got some mushers that can get you one. Okay. Uh, it looks like everybody got it. Good job, team in the back. Um, and so... That connection card, what we encourage you to do is just to fill that out. If you're a regular Tinder member, you just put your information, uh, just your name, uh, and if it, unless it's changed. And if you're a guest, with us, if you wouldn't mind just putting the information down, we'd love to follow up and just say, hey, thanks for coming. Uh, we won't spam you. Uh, we won't unnecessarily stalk you or anything like that. Uh, but we do want to follow up with you and say thank you again for coming. Anybody in here uh, a fan of superheroes? We got any superheroes junkies in here? Yeah. Uh, when you were a kid, probably, uh, you, you, you may enjoy, uh, you know, listening, uh, watching stuff about superheroes, maybe even reading comic books, uh, maybe watching movies. And, of course, it's not just kids who enjoy superheroes, right? Uh, we adults, we still like the superhero thing. And for some of us, uh, we would say we've got this specific superhero, like, like that's our superhero. That's the one that we really identify with. That's the one we like the best. It's our fave. And so uh, some of you may have that. But uh, on the screen here is a few of those superheroes. Have you ever wondered why it is that we, we like superheroes or why that we're so uh, attached to this idea of superheroes or maybe even just intrigued by it, um, why it's so popular? Well, let me just tell you that a big part of that is because I really think that in our longings, we really wish they were real. <laughs> we, we wish there really were superheroes. We, we wish that uh, there really were these these superhuman people that could do these incredible things and that they were able to use their superhuman powers to solve the problems of our world. Would you agree? Uh, we wish that there were these superheroes that could save people from, from harm and, and that uh, could fix some of the evil and, and defeat these evil enemies of our world. We wish that we had that. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to actually talk about a superhero who's not fake, who's not a fairy tale, who's not made up, his name is Jesus. 
And he's not limited to just one power. He's limitless in his power. And so when we talk about Jesus this morning, we're talking about the greatest man who ever existed, the greatest person who ever walked our planet. And I might get a little bit excited about that. So I just want to go ahead and tell you on the front end, okay? I might get a little excited about that person because he is completely and totally awesome. I want us to look in the the, the, the scripture this morning, because we said week one, as we've been working through this What We Believe series, week one, we need to go to the Bible to ask what the Bible says we are to believe, not make up our own stuff, not come up with our own plan, our own way of thinking. We need to go to the Bible. That is the foundation for all that we believe. So everything that I say this morning, you need to, one, check it through the grid of the Bible. And hopefully, I've done the hard work of, of studying and getting prepared so that I can speak to you with authority this morning from God's Word. Because in and of myself, I have no authority But with God's Word and His Holy Spirit working this place, we need to listen to what He wants to say to us today, what God wants to say to us today, okay? So we looked at the Bible. We said God's Word is important, and we should be daily spending time in it. If we aren't, we're missing out. We're missing out. Second week, we spent some time talking about how that God is a mystery. He's Trinity, which, just for a second, if you try to wrap your mind around that, that God is one God in three persons— You can't fully understand that. And truth is, we don't need to fully understand God to worship him as God. We need a God who's bigger and more awesome than our minds can wrap ourselves around, right? And then last week, Harley did a great job talking about humanity and the implications of being created in God's image. And if you don't understand that, then you will either have too high of a view of mankind or you have too low of a view of mankind. You will think that either people in and of ourselves, like we're awesome, which we're not in and of ourselves— But because God has made us in his image, we have value and worth. We can be secure in who we are. But also, you will look down on other people and say, well, they're not as valuable because they don't have enough money or they don't have enough this or that. They're not as intelligent. They're not not as uh, educated. And so we can tend to look at people as less. But the scripture says that all people are valuable because we're created in God's image. We're image bearers of our God. And so this morning, as we look at the person of Jesus, I want us to think about what the culture says about Jesus. What are the most common views we find in, in, in culture about Jesus? Number one, we find that Jesus was an insightful teacher. I hear this a lot. He was a very insightful teacher. And if you've read any of the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, in those first four books, you can read some of Jesus' teaching. And what you'll find in there is a very uh, adept, very efficient, very clear and compelling teacher. Jesus was awesome at teaching. He was very gifted at teaching. He was able to take these concepts and to bring them into story and to really hit home ideas about who God is and what he is doing and what we are to do with our lives. And so when you look at Jesus, crowds were attracted to him by the thousands. They would come and they'd what? They would listen to him teach. And it says in the scripture that he taught as with one with authority. Not like just a little authority, like because he was positionally in authority, but no, but he was like a rabbi who had crazy authority because God's hand was on him. He was anointed as he spoke, just as the book of Isaiah said he would. He would come and he would be anointed to preach the good news. And Jesus was that. And so crowds flocked to hear Jesus' teaching. It's a pretty awesome thought to be able to sit under the teaching of our Savior. And many people believe that he was a great teacher. Another common belief or common idea about Jesus, a view of Jesus, is that he was a gifted leader. Leadership is all about influence. Being able to get people to follow you. If you say you're leading and no one's following, you're not a leader, right? You're just taking a walk. And so that's what happens when you look at Jesus' life. You see that many, many people followed him. 
They were marveling at the way he was able to influence people's lives relationally. And again, with his teaching and with his direction. And and because he was so compelling, because the hand of God was on him. So he was a gifted teacher, but he was also an incredible leader. A really gifted leader. And there are many people who don't put Jesus in the category of Savior or Lord, but still can appreciate the fact that he's a leader. We're here today because he was able to influence and lead people. Thirdly, we see that one of the popular views of Jesus is that he was an incredible moral example. He was an incredible moral example. Uh, He was a good man. He did good things for the poor and the broken and the marginalized, right? I mean, he lifted the value of women way above anyone who'd ever walked the earth. He, He brought them up and said, women are valuable they're not just property to be owned. They are, they are valuable. He, he, he was an incredible moral man in that he served others and he cared for others and he had compassion on crowds of people who would have probably been annoying to us. He was very, very good in the way he lived his life, in the way he cared for others, in the way he served and ministered to others. But he was so much more than those things. And what's interesting is even people who say that he was an incredible moral example— it's a little bit of an oxymoron to say that he was a good, moral person, and yet he himself claimed that he was God. So it's hard to be good and moral, and yet tell the biggest lie, right? That you are God. Point being this, is that we can't say he's just a good person and deny the fact that he said he was God. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But I want us to look at one of the most famous uh, most used text when it comes to the person work of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And let's look at what the apostle John has to teach us in his first little section of his book. The first 18 verses are called the, uh, the prologue of the book of John. And we're not going to read all 18 verses for the sake of time today. But I want you to hear what John is really pressing on. So I'm going to pull three verses from this section, and then I encourage you this week, part of our worship guide we give you every week is a, it includes a reading plan to get in the Bible for yourself. And in that reading plan, you'll find that this John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is a part of the reading plan this week, and I encourage you to go and read that uh, by yourself, okay? Here's what it says. I'm going to read three verses. Verse 1, verse 14, and verse 18. In the beginning was the Word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In your Bible, it should be capitalized. The W should be capitalized in the Word. We're talking about who? Jesus. We're saying that Jesus, the Logos, the living Word, Jesus the Word, He was with God, and He was God. Okay? Hold that on your, in your mind. Let's jump down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now I want you to jump down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. In this text, we're reminded that God came in Jesus. So this is your point. Jesus, in Jesus, God became flesh. In Jesus, God became flesh. Now, we call this the incarnation, which is a Latin word. And if you've ever heard the word incarnation, uh, other than thinking about flowers um, or reincarnation, maybe you think about the word carne, right? So it's in meat, right? So men in the room, if you ate some good meat yesterday, in 
carnation in meat, like chili con carne, right? Meat. It's not sacrilegious. It's the Latin word to try to describe that God came in meat. He came in the flesh. So now when you eat meat, you can remember Jesus came in flesh. You can worship Jesus as you're eating a steak, as you're eating chili. And for all you vegetarians, I'm sorry, okay? (laughs) So here's the thing. We can remember that Jesus came in the flesh. In 451 AD, the Chalcedonian, uh, the council, that they met because there was a lot of confusion about Jesus coming in the flesh. And was he man? Was he God? And they were back and forth. And so they sat down and said, no. In 451 AD, here's the creed. Jesus was both God and he was man. At the same time, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said it this way. He didn't lay down his godness in the sense that he stopped being God when he came to the earth, but that he continued to be God and he added his humanity. He added humanity to his godness. Does that make sense? Okay. For me, my brain is like struggling already. I talked about the Trinity a couple weeks ago. That was a huge task. Now we're talking about Jesus being fully God and fully man at the same time. Mind is blown. The end, right? So here's where we are. They called it the hypostatic union, big language to say that he was fully man, fully God at the same time simultaneously. And I want to talk about why that actually matters. He was fully human. Let's start there. He was fully human. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh. The word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Uh, The word uh, there is also used um, the way that uh, Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible He actually describes it this way. He says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. I like that language, don't you? Kind of helps it make sense to me. That Jesus came and he moved into our neighborhood. He took on flesh. Well, how do we actually know that Jesus took on flesh? Well, the Bible tells us that he was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. Just like you and I were born from our mommies. We were formed in the womb and we came out of our mama's womb. I'm not going to go where Harley went last week. Um, But basically we know that we all experienced being born. And we are in the earth now as a a child, as a a, a person who's been born. We've experienced that. Jesus experienced that. Now, I've had that opportunity. Some of you guys know me, some of you don't. But for those of you who don't know, we have six children. Okay, And all of our children, every time they've been born, there's something unbelievable and holy about that moment when you see a little child come out in their helpless, innocent state. And that helpless, innocent state where they have no ability to take care of themselves. If you laid that baby down, we would never do that. But if you laid the baby down and you walked away, that baby would die. That baby is completely dependent on their parents to take care of them, to nurture them, to protect them, right? That's the form that Jesus came in. He was completely dependent on Mary and Joseph. He was completely in that moment flesh, crying, needing to eat, needing to be held close and comforted in his infancy. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That that's what Jesus became. So he was not only born, but he lived. And we get little images into his life, little snippets of what's going on, because really we don't have a lot from the time he was born until the time that he turned 30 and his ministry started. But we do get a a few snapshots. One, uh, when he was 12 and he was in the temple. And in that section of scripture, it tells us in Luke 2, verse 52, that Jesus grew, or in the HCSB, Jesus increased in wisdom, 
in stature, and in favor with God and people. Now think about that word for a second, and let your mind kind of grab onto that word increased or grew. What does that mean? That means that Jesus wasn't fully wise when he was born. Interesting thought. He wasn't fully formed. Like physically, he didn't come out as a man-child, right? (laughs) He came out as a baby. It says that he was not full in stature, and that even he grew in favor with God and man, in the sense that he grew in his relationship with his heavenly Father. He grew in that way. He increased in that way. And he grew in his understanding of people and how to interact with people. Let me, let me ask you an interesting question. Did Jesus ever miss an answer on a test? I mean, I don't know exactly what schooling looked like that at that point, but did he ever miss one? Probably. Did he ever make a mistake? Probably. When his dad, who was a carpenter, taught him how to swing a hammer, do you think he swung it wrong the first few times? Probably. Think he ever hit his thumb with his hammer? Probably. I mean, there's a lot of things that we don't think about. When Jesus became flesh, he really became flesh. He really became a human. He experienced the things that we experienced. Do you think that he ever had friends that made fun of him? I'm sure his brothers did. Oh, it's Jesus, the goody two-shoe, you know? And we know that he experienced that, right? We know in his life that he went through the things that we experience in our flesh, in our lives. Did he ever fall down and skin his knee? Now, when I say the word mistake, some of you are instantly like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Jesus made a mistake? We're not talking about sin here. We're talking about growing from a child into an adult, understanding how to interact as an adult, as a mature person, right? We're not talking about something of sin. With my kids, one of the key things, just a side note here, is that it's really easy for us to to discipline children sometimes for things that they don't really get yet because they're children. And so we need to discern what is truly sin and what's childishness. And Jesus was a child, and he grew, and he increased in wisdom, and he increased in his ability to do the right thing and to understand how life works. Now, I think he was probably ahead of everybody else in some ways. In fact, it even says that he was, he was very adept at memorizing the Scripture. I mean, he's the living word, for crying out loud, okay? It's an amazing thought to think about him being that. But he did have to grow up. Not only that, but we know that he was tempted. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says that he was tempted in every way. And I know some people say, well, Jesus just doesn't get me. He just doesn't understand me. God just doesn't know what it's like to live in my life. He doesn't know what I have to deal with. He doesn't know the people I have to put up with. Let me just tell you, yes, he does. He does. He does understand the the pain that you go through. He does understand what it's like to have family members demand of him. In fact, the first wedding uh, picture, we get this picture of his first miracle at a wedding in Canaan. And he's there and his mom comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, do something about the fact there's no more wine. Now, I don't know if she already knew he could do miracles before that or if she was just like saying, hey, um, it's time. Start doing something with that power of yours, okay? And she demands, she says, you know, would you, would you fix this problem? We don't have enough wine. And so, of course, in the story, he honors his mom, but he do, and he does end up helping with the wine uh, problem that they had, and he turns some water into wine, okay? And that's, that's an interesting thought, uh, especially for me as growing up as a Baptist. Jesus made wine. Interesting. Um, but that's a side note. And so think about this for a second. Later on, we find Jesus healing. Uh, and he's in the middle of teaching and healing people. And his family shows up on the scene. And they say, hey, we need to talk to you. We need you to come out here. And he's like, I'm in the middle of doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. But they're wanting him to come out. And he says, my, this is my family. Okay? So he felt the tensions that we feel of being pulled by people in his life. Expectations. People struggling to interact with him. Not only that, but even think about Judas. 
one of his closest disciples, one of the twelve, what did he do? He, he betrayed him. I mean, the ones are the ones he'd gotten closest to. One of the ones he'd poured three years of his life into betrays him. Anybody ever experienced betrayal? Jesus understands what that's like. He knows what it's like to have a group of people that one day are cheering to him, saying, Hosanna, you are the king, and the next day saying, crucify him. And not just a few people, but a lot of people. He understands what it's like to be human. And he ultimately, we understand that he was human because he died. He didn't like half die. This isn't Princess Bride, okay? He wasn't half dead. He was fully dead. Some of y'all got that. He was fully dead. He died. And because he was a physical person who could. You can't kill God, but you can kill a human being. And he really did die. And he really did rise from the dead. So why was this essential? Why was this even important at all? First is this. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. In that passage in Hebrews I read a while ago, it said that he was tempted in every way, but the last part of it says this. Yet he was what? Without sin. He was tempted like we are, but he never sinned. Not long ago I had read some research that said they had interviewed some, some teenagers that grew up in church. And as those teenagers were in church, they said, hey, uh, tell us, do you think Jesus sinned or not? And about half of the teenagers said, yes, he did sin. It tells me the church is not doing a good job teaching what we believe. Jesus did not sin. He didn't. He was sinless. He was spotless. He was perfect. The first Adam in Scripture, when you go to the creation story, he, re- he represents us well, doesn't he? He represents the rebellion. He represents the sin in our lives. He represents the messed up part of who we are. But Jesus, doesn't rep, who is called the second Adam by the Apostle Paul, he wasn't in sin. He was completely righteous. He represents a whole new way of living, a righteous way of living. So Jesus lived a life we could not live. He made it his whole life. I can't make it 30 seconds. Anybody feel that? Without sin, in some form or fashion, it feels like. But not only did he live the life we could not live, he died the death we should have died. Hebrews 2.17 says it this way. When you look at Hebrews 2.17, it talks about how that he became propitiation for our sin. And I, I know that in uh, common language, it helps me kind of to bring that down. What in the world does propitiation mean? It means this, simply that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Because God is good, because God is holy, because God is just, he couldn't ignore our sin. It would be bad for him to do that. It would be wrong for him to do that. It would be inconsistent with his character to ignore our sin. Somebody had to pay the price. And who paid that price? Jesus. He paid that price. He died the death we should have died. It says that in Hebrews 2, verse 17. So sin, at a baseline, just just hear me here, sin, what it, it really does is It's when we substitute ourselves for God. So we basically say, hey, as human beings, we're going to become God. We're going to be our own God. So sin is substituting ourselves for God, but salvation is God substituting himself for us, dying the death that we should have died. It's exchanging ourselves for himself. And that's an awesome, awesome thought. So not only was Jesus fully human, he was also fully divine. In the passage, verse 1, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus 
was fully divine. How do we know this? Well, let me just give you some claims from people who lived before him, who lived with him, and who lived after him. Okay? Start there. Prophecy. Genesis chapter 3. Wait, there's prophecy in Genesis? Yes. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to turn there in your Bible, but in verse 15, it simply says this. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. What is it saying there? It's saying that Jesus the Messiah, this is after the fall, after they've already blown it, after they've messed up, God comes on the scene, he curses man, he curses woman, he curses the snake, and he says in this passage that there will be someone, a man, who will come from a woman, born of a woman, and will crush Satan. This is the Proto-Evangelion, which is basically the first gospel. The gospel all the way back in the book of Genesis. This is telling us that one day there's going to come a man who's going to be born of a woman, right? So Jesus fit that bill? Check. You got it. Second, go up to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You can read this passage with me. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him... Emmanuel, which means God with us. What does it tell us there? It tells us that Jesus, or this Messiah, is going to be what? Born of a virgin. Okay, pretty awesome. And then you go on to another passage in Micah. This is one that's read a lot around Christmas time, where it says Bethlehem. I mean, think Buda, right? Not, not a big town, not a big, big city or anything like that. You are small among the clans of Judah. You will come from Uh, One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Obviously, again, the Messiah will be born where? Bethlehem. This is 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scenes. Are you tracking? So prophecy, talking about Jesus. Last verse for you from the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where it simply says that, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Where is he going to come to? His temple, note that, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Anybody have any idea when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem? It was destroyed in 70 AD. I'll just go ahead and answer that question for you, okay? That means since 70 AD, there has not been a temple temple, uh, there for the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to go and worship. What that tells us is that Jesus, or the Messiah, is going to be born of a woman who is a, in the town of, and it's going to be before 70 AD, right? So we're looking for some specific things here. Does Jesus mean all those things? Yes, he does. What that tells us is that we can look at the prophecy and see that there is something supernatural going on here. This doesn't just all come together. This is supernatural prophecy and fulfillment of the prophecy. The other thing you can look at is the people who lived alongside of him. People who lived, lived alongside of him. People like John, where we read this passage from John chapter 1, who said he was God. What about his brother, his half-brother James, who said we should worship him as God? What about Thomas, one of his other disciples who I brought up a few weeks ago? After he saw resurrected Jesus, he fell down on his knees and he said, you are my Lord and my God. What about Peter, who when Jesus said, who who am I? Who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God, right? So again, we can make this case all day long. There were people who lived alongside of Jesus who said he was God. So he's divine, fully divine at the same time of being fully man. And there were even people who came after him, including the apostle Paul, who came and he didn't have an encounter with Jesus physically. He had a spiritual encounter on the road to Damascus, 
But he wrote this in Colossians 2, verse 9. This is explicitly clear, where he says this, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Point is, he is God. We could look at some of the divine attributes that Jesus showed, even while he was on the earth. Things like he was sinless, as I said earlier. (laughs) No human being could be sinless, correct? Correct? Okay, just making sure you're still with me now. No human being can be sinless. What about power? He calmed the storm. He spoke to a storm and the wind and the waves died down. He was able to cast out demons. He was able to heal people who were deaf, who people who couldn't see. And even he raised people from the dead. Do you know any people who can do that? I don't. Because he was Jesus. He was fully God. So we see those divine attributes. He even had knowledge where it says he knew what they were thinking. He was God. And if that's not enough, even what Jesus said, and I alluded to this earlier, Jesus said in John 14, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I am God. So we can have confidence this morning. But you might be asking the question, maybe you're anticipating this, saying, well, why does that matter? Why does he have to be fully man and fully God at the same time? What does that matter? First is simply this. No human being could bear the penalty of our sin. Only God could do that. We couldn't survive carrying the penalty of our sin. What is the penalty for our sin? Death. But he took the sin of all of mankind upon himself. Only God could do that. And not only that, but only God can save. Jonah 2 verse 9, in the the little book about a man who ran from God because he didn't want to go to Nineveh to tell him to, to repent, and so he gets into a boat, he gets thrown over the side of the boat, he gets swallowed by a well, stayed there for three days, he spit up on the, the shore, and he finally says, okay, God, I'll listen. I think I'd probably do the same thing. And it says in the passage, it says that salvation belongs to God. Only God can save. We cannot save ourselves. Let me drive this point home, because we want to make sure, you may, sound, you may be, come here every week, and you say, he says the same thing every week. Because I don't think it gets through our heads. I don't think it gets to our hearts. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough. We cannot go to church enough. We cannot be a good enough husband, a good enough dad, a good enough worker to save ourselves. Only Christ can save. It's only his finished work on the cross that brings salvation to all of us. And that shouldn't put us in the, into depression. That should lift our spirits because we know how messed up we are. And we know how in our best efforts we still fail. Agreed? So we see these things that remind us that his deity, his being God, is essential. So how do we respond to this mysterious reality this morning? Let me just take you to one final passage, and we'll close out. Philippians 2, it's a passage that I love to go to periodically, even though it's painful to read, and to remember what God has called me to. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul, the apostle, he writes this to the church at Philippi. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his what? His own advantage. Instead, he emptied, I love that word, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he came as a what? A man in his external form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, and he gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing passage that speaks to who Jesus is. Three responses. There's a lot more responses that could go a lot of different directions, but three specific responses for us this morning. What do we do with this truth? First of this, we thank God. We thank God that Jesus was humble enough that he would empty himself. He would remove himself from his little throne next to, our big throne, next to his Father in heaven and to come down and to put on our flesh and to walk among us to deal with all the issues that we have to deal with every day because he loved us that much. He was willing to come. And that to me in my mind this morning says, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you would do that for me, that you would do that for us because we are undeserving. Thank you, Jesus. There, we ought to be the most grateful people on the planet. When we stop and consider what he has done, we are thankful. Secondly, our response is this. When you look at his life, we should imitate him. If you want to know who should be your hero, if you want to know who should be your superhero, if you want to know who you should model your life after, model it after Jesus. Because there is no man who has ever lived A life worth living like the person of Jesus. He served others. He put others before himself time in and time and time again. He showed us what it looked like to really fully be human in the way that God intended, like we talked about last week. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God made flesh, and he has showed us how to live. And if you want to know what you should do with your life, look at Jesus' life and follow his example. We should imitate him. We should imitate him in everything. We won't do that perfectly. We're going to mess up, but that should be our goal. Men in this room, if you want to be a husband who is a godly husband who leads your wife, if you want to be a dad who leads your children well, follow Jesus' example. And he didn't even get married, and he didn't have children in that way, but he showed us what it looks like to love and to serve others and to lead others with grace and with truth. And finally, our response this morning honestly the most logical response it incorporates a lot of things and it could look different for you ultimately in this is to worship him to worship him because in this passage it says to us again god the father exalted him because he humbled himself god exalted him and he gave him the name that is above every other name even above justin bieber even above whoever it is that you elevate and our culture elevates as our heroes and, and all the people that we bow down and worship to. I know none of us would say we really do that, but that's how we live. We model our lives after them. It says that his name is above every other name. Think about this for a second. Every person on this planet, no matter how much money they have, no matter how famous they are, no matter how educated they are, no matter how big or great or awesome they think they are, every single one of them is going to fall on their face before a holy Jesus and they're going to worship him. Either by choice or by force, but it's going to happen. Because when Jesus comes back, he's not going to come back as a helpless little baby who needs his mommy to take care of him. He's going to come back as a warrior king who is a righteous judge with a tattoo on his thigh and a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's going to take care of all the injustice in our world. And he is worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship. And I think that part of the problem that I have and part of the problem that you have today is we don't see him rightly, so therefore we don't worship him rightly. And the more we see him rightly, the more we cannot contain the worship that we have for this amazing Jesus. If you've never put your trust in the person of Jesus, I plead with you today, quit living for yourself. It's empty. 
It's vain. It's going to lead you down a dead end to destruction. That's what the Bible says. But if you want life, it's in Jesus. If you want hope, it's in Jesus. If you want to have a meaningful, purpose-filled life, you will find that in Jesus. Not an easy life. Not everything's great and always comfortable. But if you want life, you will find it in the person of Jesus. Because he is fully God, he is fully man, and he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Let's pray.